Let's keep honoring Christ together. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John 15, we'll be studying today verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. I want to warn you ahead of time that um, the text today is it's not quite as cheery as the one last week. Last week's all about love of the brethren. This one's about the hatred of the world. But we're just following the words of Jesus as he's presented them to us. Follow along with me beginning at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Well, friends, it's official. Being a Christian now in the United States is for the first time no longer a social game. It used to be in the 50s and 60s that uh, saying that you were a Christian or that you went to church would garner you some measure of respect with the community But many sociologists, anthropologists believe that probably 2016, the Obergefell decision marked the official end of that because of the sexual ethic associated with Christianity in particular and the world's identity as sexual beings who don't necessarily want to be hemmed in by the standards of Scripture. You're officially now, and I am officially now, the odd man out. 
No longer are people looking for your thoughts, applauding your morality. In fact, they're not even tolerating it. They hate it. There is active campaigning for public policy against not only your morals and customs, your rights and your wrongs, but even the notion of any kind of exclusivistic, singular truth has been on the attack for decades. And it seems weird, but you know what seems even more weird? It's that it seems weird. The texts of Scripture are replete with warning after warning after warning that this is the way it is. It's weird that it wasn't that way. So welcome to the new normal, which is the old normal, of being hated by the world. You know that in this particular section, Jesus is trying to adjust expectations for a ministry that he's about to send his 12 or now 11 followers on without his personal leading and help. So he's been trying to tell them, you're going to be okay even though I'm not with you because I'm going to empower you in a special way by sending you the Holy Spirit. You're going to find life in me, and you're going to love one another well, and you're going to have this special community But to draw near to one another is to draw far from those who you formerly belonged to. Therefore, be ready. Expect hatred of the world. This text is just a simple lesson in expectation management. Don't don't hear it and get scared that um, because you're not enduring persecution in this very moment that somehow you must be doing something wrong. This isn't A text that promises the experience of persecution 24-7-365. The thrust of these verses is simply expectation adjustment. And he gives us four reasons in particular for us to expect the hatred of the world. Why should we expect the hatred of the world? For those of you who like alliteration and rhyme, I ain't got it. But I'll do my best to keep it simple. Here's the first reason. You belong to an exclusive group. You now belong to an exclusive group. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, He's he's drawing a connection here. He's given a conditional statement, and we talked about conditions last week. This is a first-class condition. It's assuming this is true. If the world hates you, and it does, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. And it makes you wonder, okay, well, why? Why hate Jesus? Why hate those who belong to Jesus? I mean, he's such a nice guy. I mean, wasn't this the guy that fed the 5,000 and like healed sick children and brought people back to, to, to life from the dead? I mean, what's not to like about Jesus according to the book of John? I mean, he turns water into wine. He's a nice guy. And yet we saw 
that two things in particular so far in our study of the book of John have been inflammatory toward the world, the general system of people out there. One is his authority. Here's the guy who says, before he even gets his message out, amen, amen, I say to you. Now, that may sound strange to you. You see that, remember the old King James word, verily, verily, I say to you. The rabbis of that particular time, when you would sit in a synagogue, uh, what the guy was preaching and teaching wasn't considered true until the older people around the edges actually said, amen, amen. They were confirming the truth of the synagogue teacher. Jesus, before he even gets his message out, says, amen, amen. He has an authority that flew in the face of the people of that time, and we see the religious leaders in particular hating it. But not only do they hate him for his authority, but they also hate him because of his promised death. What did they want from Jesus? They wanted prosperity, life, health, wealth, happiness, popularity. And what does Jesus begin to prophesy toward the end of his ministry? I'm going to die. Like a seed in the ground dies. I'm going to die. And you're going to die with me, by the way. I'm going to be crucified by the Roman government. I'm not going to conquer the Roman government in the way that you think at first. I'm actually going to be crucified by it. This was a disgusting message to them. And that is why just 24 hours earlier, they all celebrate him. But just 24 hours later, they will all cry out, crucify him. And he says, there's a connection. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. And here's one reason in particular they're going to hate you. Yes, you're associated with me, but I've done something to you that has made you different. Look at verse 19. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know the old saying, uh, birds of a feather flock together? Jesus is saying here, I've made you a different bird. You did belong to one group, now you belong to my group. You're part of an exclusive group. The word world is confusing, admittedly. When you hear the word world, you typically think of the planet. And sometimes in the Bible, world, cosmos, that's the Greek word for it, refers to the physical planet that we dwell in. Sometimes world just refers to all those people who live on that planet. John 3.16, God so loved the world. But most often, especially in the writings of John, the, the word world refers to that system of thought that is opposed to the rule of God and those who are subjected to it. That system of thought that's just kind of operative and out there that is opposed to the rule of God and those who are subject to that system of thought. It's that just general allergic reaction to Jesus and his ways. I know that our world claims to be a more tolerant one 
But no one in Washington, for example, is actually advocating for a system of government that's organized around the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus. Some don't even mind Judeo-Christian values generically, but there's something especially disgusting about Jesus to some people. I mean, there is actually, culturally, way more cultural deference given to Islam today than there is generally to Christianity in particular. That's the world. It's a system of thought that's opposed to the the way that God thinks, and it's those who are subjected to it. He says there's this group, there's this one like clique, if you will, imagine like high school and the lunch tables. There's this one lunch table called the world, and they share the same origin and values. Don't we seek people out who come from the same part of the world that we do and who seem to be headed in the same direction that we do? We like to reflect and reminisce on the good times, what it was like to live in this place or that place, what it was like to grow up under these circumstances. We look for people who are headed the same direction. Maybe they want to make money like we do, or maybe they want to live in a certain place like we do. We align ourselves with them. There's, there's values that are there. They bring you together. He's saying the world is, is one of these lunch tables, and Jesus is saying, I have removed you from that group, and now you sit at my table. And in the world system, you're not at the cool table anymore. You have the wrong identity, and you have the wrong mission and orientation. Whereas the world loves to come together on the basis of their financial identity, their political identity, their sexual identity, you now are primarily identified as the one who is associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. They have nothing in common with you in that regard. And not only that, you want something different than they do. Whereas they want sex, money, power, you want Jesus and his will. And so they don't like that. They, they want to eliminate that. You're part of an exclusive group. He says, I, I chose you out of the world. You're different now. Remember, therefore, that the world hates you. People try to eliminate that which they do not understand. Eliminate that which they do not understand. I'll tell you, friends, um, before you get all high and mighty about it, I want to remind you of one thing. The only reason you're at his lunch table is because he chose you. He says, I have chosen you out of the world. Did you not see that two verses ago when we were looking at it last week? He reminds them, just in case they ever forget it. You did not choose me, verse 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It was all part of his plan. We were wandering along in darkness darkness and night like everybody else, and yet he put us in his group And the world hates that. It's an exclusive group. There's a second reason why you should expect the hatred of the world, and that is your condemning connection. Condemning connection. You should expect the hatred of the world because of your belonging to this exclusive group and also because of your condemning connection. Verses 20 through 25 is what we're going to look at here, and I want to admit ahead of time that this will be 
the, uh, the toughest sledding of the text. It's some thick snow here. I'm gonna, we're going to power through, but it's a really tight argument, a lot of ifs and thens and therefores, but let me give you the overview. You ready for it? It's two words, connection, condemnation. Connection, I'm going to preview this ahead of time. This text is going to draw a connection between you and Jesus and Jesus and the Father. Y'all are connected. We're connected. And because they find the Father and Jesus to be condemning of their lifestyle, the world hates you. Look look at it in, in the text, beginning at verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. That came, by the way, from John 13, 16. Remember the upper room where they were just a few moments earlier? He's washing their feet, and what does he say to them? Hey, a servant is not greater than his master. If I wash your feet, you're going to wash one another's feet. There he applied that, that commonality uh, to service. Here he applies it to persecution. It's a really easy argument to follow. Basically, you imagine uh, a military context for a second. If they eliminate the general via firing squad, it stands to reason that they will probably eliminate the soldiers under him. Like he's saying, there's an, an unbreakable connection between you as the servant, me as the Lord, and here's how he explains it. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, that part's a little confusing, admittedly, but just know this. How they treat Jesus is how they treat you. If they persecute him, they're going to persecute you. If, whether it's an irony or he intends it to be serious, whether they keep his word, whether they obey him, which is very few people, well, they might obey you. There might be a positive response to the word. But the thing that he's emphasizing is the persecution. Now, persecution is a word that I think gets a bad rap because we hear it and we think, oh no, what's my problem? I'm not being persecuted. Why isn't anybody torturing me to death in jail right now? And I think it's because we have misunderstood the word persecute. It means, like if you were to look it up, basic Greek dictionary, it means to pursue, to run after. Typically to run after with the intent of scaring away. Um... I'm looking around. Is there anybody in this room that lives on um, Hidden Oaks Lane back here? Okay, y'all. Yeah, of course. Not you. (laughs) Is there anyone who knows anyone other than us that lives on said street? Okay. Because I'm going to tell a story that could really get me in trouble. Sean, you're going to have to cut this out of the recorder. So, like, it's interesting one of the foremost Greek scholars actually defines this particular word, A.T. Robertson. He says, um, to chase away as one would chase away an animal. And like, it, I've seen this in our house. This happens so regularly. We have some undisclosed individuals that may or may not live close to us who have pet raccoons. Yeah, pet raccoons. Raccoons. <laughs> and, and, and we have chickens. Raccoons and chickens don't get along very well. 
So it is a regular endeavor um, for me to, to different degrees of hostility, <laughs> run after these raccoons or to have really fast-moving instruments that come from the barrel of a gun <laughs> run after these. I mean, it is, is crazy. I'm telling you, if somebody were to see me, they would think I was absolutely insane. But it literally is. Like, the thing sometimes just won't move. They just, like, you throw stuff at it, and it just keeps walking and looking at you. And, and you just run at it with everything you've got. Like, that's persecution. Like, you want it gone. Persecution doesn't just mean physical torture, even though that's come to mind. <laughs> it means running after the thing because you don't want it there to pursue. And friends, Jesus is saying, if they persecuted me, if they ran after me, if they got after me, they're going to get after you. Sure, that could involve physical pain, torture, punishment, but Jesus is going to well qualify that it also includes emotional rejection, a word we don't use very often, ostracization. Like, they want you to be the outcast. And they did that. They tried to exclude, they tried to literally run them off of the temple, the temple mount. They were seeking some way to arrest him. They were trying to eliminate him from the personal presence. And, and, and you're asking the question again, okay, why? why? Why were they wanting to persecute him? Why wouldn't they not heed his teaching? Well, he makes it clear. He says, all, look at verse 21, but all these things, this, this persecution, this running you off, they will do to you on account of my name. All right, they're going to do it because of his name, because of his authority, because of what he stands for. Because, here's why, they do not know him who sent me. They don't know him. Now, when we hear the word know, we typically think of like the intellect, like we're so enlightenment-driven Westerners. The word know, though, in the first century and even in the centuries before that in the Old Testament, primarily conveyed relationship. Remember it says that Adam knew his wife Eve? It's not talking about like he had like her birthday memorized. Knowledge is something intimate. It is something relational. What he's saying here is the reason why they are going to try to run me off and run you off is because they don't know me. And because they don't know me, they don't know the Father. They're, they're not in a relationship with me. They don't care about me. They don't care about the Father. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But thou, now they have no excuse for their sin. You read that and you're like, what? They weren't guilty of sin till Jesus showed up? That's not what he's saying. He's not emphasizing the fact that they weren't guilty. He's saying that he was the climactic expression of God, and when rejecting him, they thereby rejected God. They were without excuse. I was talking to another uh, church member earlier this week about education and homeschooling and what we do with our kids, and they were telling me about what they do with their kids, and uh, it is a funny thing. You know, different kids have different learning styles. Some of them, it seems, would do better in a social environment with other people. Some of them would do better with just a book. You know, you just say, read this, and then take the test. 
I think a lot of us, though, are, are a little less like, just give me the book. Some of us are like, man, I need somebody to teach me. I need, I need somebody in person. Basically, what uh, Jesus is saying here is that um, they had the book, they had the law, they had the Old Testament, but they could have, like, they could have played the excuse that the, the well-meaning child could play, like, well, I don't really connect with a book. I need, I need a person. I need a tutor. I need somebody to come in person and explain this to me. And Jesus, <laughs> he comes as the teacher, and he's not even just the teacher. He's the author of the textbook, and he shows up, and they still supposedly don't get it. And he's saying, no, now they're without excuse. This is the smoking gun of their condemnation, and they will do anything to eliminate the evidence. He is the clearest, most climactic, most compelling presentation of God how to be saved, how to live in light of that salvation. And they were like, no, thank you. And Jesus is saying, they have condemned their selves by condemning me. They didn't want me. Because when I presented truth to them, it showed them something about themselves that they did not want to admit. One, that they could not save themselves. Two, that they needed saving. There's this wondrous fascination with Christians, but especially Christ. There is something beautiful about him, right? I mean, don't we know of those passages that talk about Jesus being the friend of sinners? It's not that everybody was repulsed by him, but notice they're initially repulsed by him, but then they don't want anything to do with him once they begin to realize the implications that his way of living will have upon their life. I've seen it over and over again. In my own attempts to share Jesus with other people, they like the idea of him being gracious and compassionate and powerful. But as soon as it begins to have some kind of implication upon their life, the way that they live, the things that they value, all of a sudden he's not that attractive anymore. It's condemning. And we're connected to him. In fact, Jesus takes it a step farther. Look at your Bible again in verse 23. He says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. Because Jesus was simply revealing the Father. Look at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, those unique signs and miracles, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. It is without a doubt that they got the full picture. Jesus even backed it up. He showed himself to be the authoritative counselor of God, and they said, no thanks. Even in the face of such mighty miracles, they hated it. And it does seem rather illogical that somebody would hate the source of all life. Look at verse 25. This isn't contrary to God's plan. It says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled they hated me without a cause. It seems kind of illogical, doesn't it? That somebody uh, would hate the one who demonstrably proved more than any other that he could provide life, that he could provide healing, that he could provide joy. That's what all those signs pointed to. Like, who would hate that? It just seems rather illogical. And he points to this Old Testament passage that we read earlier, Psalm 69. It's kind of long. 
but it's one of the most referenced psalms in the New Testament because it constantly shows the Davidic ruler that was promised in the Old Testament, the Messiah. It shows like how he would be treated. And in verse 4, it says that they hated me without a cause. He says, my pursuers were as many as the hairs on my head, and they hated me without a cause. Even in the Old Testament, they were going to expect that their ultimate ruler, their Davidic leader, their Messiah, was just going to be hated by some folks. And Jesus is saying, oh, this isn't too far out of left field, because we already know that the Davidic Messiah would be hated for for illogical reasons. Friends, they don't necessarily have a good reason for hating this condemnation. It's like hating the doctor who says you have cancer. He didn't do anything to you. He's trying to help you. But sometimes people are just going to hate. It's the way it works. So there's this condemning connection. That third, there's a third reason why they, you should expect hatred. Anybody depressed yet? Everybody? I don't want you to be too happy today. Um, we'll get there, don't worry. Empowered testimony. Empowered testimony. There's a, th- a third reason why they will hate you is because of your empowered testimony. Um, look at verses 26 and 27. This is, this is pretty cool. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus is saying that in the face of this like static hatred, you're actually going to stir the pot a little more. And here's why. Because as I already told you back, you know, a little while ago, I'm going to send the helper. And remember, helper is the authoritative enabler. That's what the word parakletos means for us. Not just like help. But authoritative help. Uh, Not, you know, King James comforter, which makes you think of something soft on your bed. But the, the Latin word underlying comfort, confortare, with strength. He's going to come and imbibe you with, endue you with strength. He's going to be a, uh, an advocate for you. Sometimes the word advocate's used. The reason why I don't think that's the best word is because it assumes that it's always legal, like you've got legal counsel. But if you've ever been in legal trouble before, you don't just want the person on nextdoor.com helping you with your legal issues. You want somebody that's got some authority, somebody who knows what they're talking about. He's saying that this helper is going to come. And you remember, this helper... Is, is sent because Jesus has asked the Father to send him, and, and he comes, he proceeds from the Father. I mean, he's not less than God. He, he is actually God. And he comes, and what is, else is he also called? The, the one who proclaims truth, the one characterized by truth. And what does this comforter, helper help us do in Jesus' absence? It says in our text that he will bear witness about me, and y'all will bear witness. He begins speaking about Jesus. Now, I want you to know that this is an irritant in an already irritating situation. I mean, it's one thing uh, to be 
is something else to advertise. Like most of us don't really have a problem with people living in all kinds of culturally repugnant ways to us. It just really gets on our nerves when they flaunt it. Doesn't it? You ever feel that way? Like, Why do they have to be so outgoing about it? Why, why do they have to be so blatant? Why do they have to be so in your face? Well, have some sympathy, friends, because that's how the world feels about you. They don't care. They honestly don't give a rip if you simply believe that Jesus is Lord for yourself. Welcome to the 21st century. You can believe whatever you want. It's your truth. As long as it's your truth, as long as you keep this private, as long as it's your little thing, like nobody cares. They don't care. But as soon as you start saying, and you need to believe in this Jesus also, now you are a pain in the rear. And the text is saying, oh, by the way, even when the pressure comes, the Spirit is so going to work in you that He's going to cause you to speak out and testify to Jesus. You're going to constantly be telling other people about Jesus, and that will stir the pot. That is poking the bear, friends. And yet, here's the great news about it, that even though they will be irritated by this empowered testimony, notice this, he says, you're going to do it. You're going to be faithful. I'm going to empower this. It will not, they will not shut you down. And such has been the testimony of the church, even from its earliest days. The intensity of persecution only, only ever intensifies and increases the advance of the gospel. There have been times, admittedly, in history where the persecution worked, where people shut up, they backed off. But the long-term effect of persecution has always been the propagation of the gospel. So you're hated for your empowered testimony. Don't worry, it's going to get practical soon. I want you to see one more reason, though, why you should expect hatred. And that is you're experiencing a prophesied problem. A prophesied problem. Look at verses 1 through 4. Jesus speaks with prophetic weight, saying, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Uh, to keep you from, uh, from, yeah, from like giving up. To keep you in the battle. They will, they will, notice the, the future tense indicative, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things, not might, but will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Uh, Jesus puts on the prophetic hat here and says, I'm telling you, this is just the way it's going to be. I'm telling you, I know what's going to happen. This will happen. And I'm telling you ahead of time so that you won't be surprised and fall away. Uh, in military tactics, there's this common phrase, maybe you've heard it before or something like it. To be forewarned 
is to be forearmed. The greatest potential for military success in an offense is surprise. Nothing has the potency of surprise. Jesus is saying, I know the strategy. Don't be surprised. They will remove you from the synagogue. And I know what some of you could be thinking, like, ooh, good thing I don't belong to a synagogue. (laughs) Uh, The synagogue, friends, was the center of the Jewish social network. It was where they went every week. It was where their family came from. It's where their business contacts came from. For, for them to say that you will be removed from the synagogue is to say that you will be removed from the social centers of the world. You will not have primary access to that influence anymore. There will be relational damage. This is easier to see. This happens in the United States, but it's easier to see somewhere like China. I don't know if you know this or not, but the the Chinese government has actually imposed something upon all citizens there called a social credit score. So you have a financial credit score, right? Shows your 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 ability to be able to pay stuff off. And and financial institutions can make decisions on whether or not they want to extend you a loan on the basis of that credit score. China has implemented a social credit score. And when you align with the values of the CCP, when you, when you actually demonstrate that, your score goes up. That means you can get into better communities, you can get access to better education. And when you do things that are opposed to the values of the CCP, now your, your, your score literally goes down. They have access to it and can determine whether or not they want you to be able to get your kid into this school or whether or not they're going to allow you to move into this particular community. Could you imagine that? Like if you didn't line up with the values of the world, your, your credit score going down, your social credit score going down? It does already, whether you have the number or not. <laughs> Lining up with Jesus is a social liability for you. Because we're so driven by money, we can overcome some of this, but when it comes to winning the general popularity contest, you lose. That's what the text is saying. You will lose. I'm prophesying it ahead of time. Not only that, but he specifically points out that some people will do this. This is the crazy thing, to add insult to injury. Some people will do this thinking that they're serving God. It's not just that they know that they're serving Satan and it's good versus evil. Some people will pursue you, shut you up, run after you, and thinking that they're doing God a favor. Did you know that when Thomas Cranmer was burned alive at the stake, they preached a sermon in honor of the event that was about to take place? Just think through the English Reformation, friends, if you can remember at all the name Bloody Mary. She killed more people ever in the name of God. Paul, what was he doing? What was he doing right before he was converted? Killing people who belonged to Christ in the name of God. And then all of a sudden Saul becomes Paul, and now... He's being killed or trying to be killed by those same people. 
You see it in certain branches of Islam still today, the ones that are consistent with what the Quran teaches. People think that they're doing God a favor by, by getting rid of you. You say, that's going to happen. But I want you to know that when it happens, I called it. Expect it. So, um, now that we're all down and out, what does Jesus uh, want us to do with this? It's, um, I thought hard about it, and I, I think a, a, a simple parallel will help you apply this to your life in a very meaningful way. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, no pain, no gain? Well, only half of you? Goodness. Y'all need to hit a gym. No pain, no gain. It's a, it's a common phrase. It's just people need to know that if they want the gains of a good workout, I don't care if they're trying to get faster or more flexible or stronger or more cut or whatever, you're going to have to pay, some, pay a price. Um, you know, just some general advice, like if whatever it is you're trying to do to train for that marathon never causes you to breathe heavy and your lungs to hurt, you're probably not really training. You're going for a slow walk. Like in the fitness community, people have just learned to embrace that uh, for, for progress, there will be pain. Appropriate pain. Appropriate pain. Because every one of us who have ever tried to do this exercise thing at some point know what it's like to hurt for doing the wrong thing. <laughs> we did it the wrong way. But when you're doing it the right way, there's an appropriate amount of pain that would be expected, and it's kind of like, it's a reassuring thing. When you experience that, you're like, all right, I'm feeling the burn. <laughs> That's what people say to one another in a spin class. Feel the burn. Make your lungs hurt. And if you didn't know what was going on, you think, these people are crazy. But they know that that's what gets it done. They've accepted it. There's an expectation adjustment. That progress comes at the price of pain. Friends, this text is nothing less than expectation adjustment. You know that you're progressing in the right way when you at times feel the pain of following Jesus. I mean, what do you think will happen or would happen to someone who belongs to an exclusive group, someone who has this condemning connection, someone who is sharing this empowered testimony, and someone who has been prophesied of experiencing this problem, pain. And we don't lean away from it. We don't shy away from it. We we actually lean in. It's, there's, there's, it's right for it to hurt. And so I, I wanted to speak just very pastorally to a few groups here, and, and we'll be done. First, to those of you who experience um, no pain. No pain. I think that there is a group of people who have bought into a version of Christianity that is truly a deception. 
It's popularly preached on TV, sometimes on radio. But it's, it's a version of Christianity that says, this will make you healthy, happy, and wise, and wealthy. You want a better life? Just sign up for Jesus. And it's, it's just, it's poison with Jesus' label on it. It's, I mean, it's so clear that that is not what Jesus is saying. What, what did he say in Mark chapter 8? Do you remember this? If any man would follow me, let him take up his cross, die to himself. I'm not trying to be ultra-morbid here. I'm just saying that if you bought in to a version of Christianity that has no cross for you in your daily life, you may not, probably do not have true Christianity. If you somehow have figured out a way just to be like everybody's buddy and always get along... It may not be Christianity that you have. And I say this to those who experience just no pain at all for following Jesus. I warn you. I mean, I think this is why, that one of the main reasons why John wrote this was for people who were considering confessing Christ and believing in Him, like he wanted them to know ahead of time, hey, here's what you're getting yourself into. Heads up. Even Jesus would say it this way. What man building a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost to see if he's got enough money to finish it? He says, and what king goes off to war and doesn't sit and think whether or not he has enough soldiers to finish the battle? And he says, so should you consider the cost of following me. So we have no pain. I would just remind you kindly that Christ has come to bring you into his eternal kingdom. He, he lived the life you couldn't live, and he died on your behalf. He suffered all of God's wrath. And the pain that you would experience, friends, is not payment for your sin. That's already been satisfied. But the resurrected Lord promises eternal life that will be fully enjoyed, not in the here and now, but in the then and there. There is real life now. There is real joy now. But he says, if you follow me now, you will be hated by the world in the meantime, but you will be loved by the Father forever. I'm not telling you don't follow Jesus. I'm saying when you do follow Jesus, make sure you understand what it will cost you. And you're like, well, well, I don't, you know, cost, that's legalism. Look, friends, it doesn't cost anything to join the army. Not a thing. It doesn't cost anything to follow Jesus. But you will feel it on the back end. To those of you who feel little pain, little pain, you know, like, like there's some of us, I think this is a lot of us actually in the room, self-included, who are like, you know, um, I do live in Naples, Florida, which is like the happiest, healthiest place in the United States, supposedly, wherever that stat comes from. Um, I don't know anybody that's been tortured alive for Jesus at the local jail lately. And it would be easy for us to kind of assume that, um, okay, well, maybe we've graduated past this. Maybe the world's in a different place now. Maybe we don't. You know, like, what does is, what is this kind of, um, of hatred look like for us? And I would just point out one thing at the outset you don't experience this hatred all the time. Even Jesus had moments of favor with men. 
Even the book of Proverbs talks about the favor that a righteous man will have with the community around him. Don't, don't take this and start all of a sudden thinking, oh man, something is wrong with me because no one is actively pursuing me for the name of Jesus right now. It comes in seasons and in different ways. But let me tell you just a quick reason why I think you may not be experiencing it to the degree that maybe is expected here. It's because we found, we found some ways around it. There's two in particular that I, I just want to warn you against. That I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you what to do. I just want to warn you of, of two things. If you're like, I'm not really feeling it. Well, one is the, the way of escape of, of accommodation. And the other is the way of escape of a tr- retreat. Accommodation happens when we all of a sudden mold and shape our message in such a way that the rough edges are taken off. Some of you are more people-oriented kinds of people, and therefore you modify the message so it doesn't sound quite as harsh. Let me just put it to you this way. People don't mind you saying Jesus is Lord. What they mind you saying is Jesus is Lord alone. It's one thing for us to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I'm trusting in Him for my salvation. It's something else to say, and there's no other way unto the Father but by Him. It's the path of accommodation. Through that central belief in Jesus, and then also in the behaviors that follow it. Well, yeah, I guess that there's some, you know, the the church has uh, overstated some of its sexual stances in times past. You know, there needs to be some liberty for, you know, like you you just soften, you massage, just accommodation. Friends, beware of that. Maybe you've softened the message to such a degree that you're no longer faithfully proclaiming it. The other is the path of escape. There's accommodation, and these are people who are in the world, but they're they're not potent in their, their preaching, but then there's this other group who have retreated from the world. And man, they're pure in their doctrine. They'll tell you everything. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. They'll tell you all the, the sexual mores and the Christian ethic, and they'll defend it. Uh, that They will be right down the line on every issue. They are big, and they are bad, and they are bold, but they are contained into their own Christian world, and nobody is hearing them except for the other Christians around them. And I think this is the easiest one. I mean, I don't know anybody that moved to this part of Florida because you were looking for religious persecution. I mean, I moved here six years ago, and I was thinking, like, wow, this is a great place to raise a family, and there seems to be a lot of people moving here, and there'd be good opportunity for church planning. Then COVID rolls around, and who knows how many of you guys were like, man, i got to get out of where I was. It's crazy over there. What we really need is to be down here. So we all have this tendency, and it's, it's human. It's okay. Like, I'm not saying go move to Iran if you could. But we do have this tendency to put ourselves in comfortable spots. But then once we get in the comfortable spot, we try to make the spot more comfortable and more comfortable and more comfortable. And we're never surrounded by anybody who actually needs the truth. Which is why I would say that the love of Christ is not just, as we saw last week, communal. It is also missional. You do not feel the weight of gospel adversity until you try to advance it uphill. If you're just trying to hold on to it, It's not that hard. But as soon as you try to pick it up and advance it, that's when you begin to feel it. 
And maybe some of us have escaped this pressure because we're not actually advancing it. We've made ourselves so busy. It's possible that we've made ourselves so busy with one another and good Christian activity that we have removed ourselves from any influence in the world. There's no pain. There's some pain. And then there's some who are pained, but maybe don't even realize it. I want to end on a note of hope. I don't want you to think that I'm angry about anything or that we all have to go do something radical or different than what we're doing. I think the Spirit will work. But I want to encourage you with something else. The pain that we experience in following Jesus isn't limited to us individually. It is something we experience corporately. We all at different stages of life are experiencing different things, but some of us are making sacrifices to see other people advance the gospel in some of the hardest places around the world. It was so interesting. I did not coordinate it, but Mitch today prayed for a couple who wants to come through our church and go out to Laos. Laos is one of the most hostile countries to Christianity on the planet. People are regularly imprisoned, deprived of resources, and some are even killed for naming Jesus there. And we, as a church, or wanting to send a couple there to plant a church where Jesus has never been named. That isn't just them carrying the cross of Jesus. That isn't just them experiencing the persecution. The way that I understand it is that when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And when you encourage and strengthen another brother in Christ who's taken a stand at his workplace and he's having to pay for it financially and you weep with him and you cry with him and you pray with him, now his cross has become your cross. A church that is faithfully pushing the gospel outward shares in its persecution. Don't just individualize the text. I didn't do it because it would be annoying and I know that you guys probably think that I'm overplaying this card But truly, go back and reread the text and replace you with y'all and see what happens. It's a plural pronoun. Y'all will experience persecution. Y'all will be hated for my name. When we begin to think of it as like more of a team sport like football and less like a game of golf, an individual sport, like you get the idea. Like the team that's regularly advancing the gospel to unreached places is feeling the hurt of that as these people are experiencing all kinds of hardship and we now experience the burden of trying to help them as they're seeing the gospel advance. Of course it would make some kind of sense that since the gospel was made it to southwest Florida that there is a good contingent of people that do love Jesus and therefore we don't experience the same amount of pressure as somebody who's trying to see it advance in inner Mongolia. But it's not just their burden, it's our burden. And that is where we know we're doing the right thing when we're feeling the pain of seeing the gospel progress to some of the hardest places in the world. Friends, you may be experiencing this pain more than you realize. Some of you are doing this so faithfully, you're just used to it. You don't get invited to certain family events. Some people don't want anything to do with you. And you've already gotten used to it. It's okay. Good job. 
All I would say is pain for the progress of the gospel is something to be proud of. And this is where I end. I've seen many a young man start working out for the first time in his life. And, you know, he's done a big workout. And he starts saying stuff like, man, I'm sore. Oh, I'm sore. And it it wants you to ask him, well, why are you sore? Well, I just squatted 300 yesterday. Did you know? This is crazy. The pain associated with progressing the gospel is actually worth bragging about. Paul does it. He says, I boast in nothing else. The fact that I've been beat up for Jesus. Like, it's actually, because you didn't do it. The Spirit enables you to do it. There's this interesting passage at the conclusion of Pilgrim's Progress. The real conclusion. Most of you, when you hear the word Pilgrim's Progress, you only think of book one with Christian. There's book two with Christiana. And Christiana takes all the kids and they make their way to the river right before they get to the golden city. And and they sit there and they watch people cross. And at one particular juncture, they see this man, Mr. Valiant for Truth who starts to give away like all of his stuff before he crosses the river. But he says this, but I give not away my scars. Those I take with me. Friends, these these scars that we experience for carrying the cross of Jesus, for advancing the gospel, and those are marks of honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a pain that we can be proud of. That's when we know we're doing it right. And in the meantime, you say, how how would we ever endure that? We keep looking to Christ who has provided for us forevermore. He's so worth it. And I pray that we'd remind ourselves of that even in concluding today. We're going to sing a song that reminds us of the pain associated with following Jesus, but the pleasure of being His forevermore. Brothers and sisters, persevere in that pain. And if you don't know it, consider truly what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we have walked patiently through a difficult truth today, one that flies in the face of our American Christianity, uh, but one that is inescapable. Or for those who do not know or have experienced um, what it means to truly follow Jesus, they've never turned from their sin and trusted in Him alone, I pray that they would see that today He is worth it, that they would follow Him, that they would be saved, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And for those who are maybe moderating this pain by either accommodating their message or sequestering themselves away from the world, I pray that you would make them a a bright light that shines on a hill and that you'd restore their influence in the community and they would know the joy and pressure of following Jesus in this way. And for those of us who are faithfully enduring through hardship, both individually and collectively, Lord, encourage us, remind us that it is worth it all, because Christ is ours forevermore. And it's in his name we pray.
Amen.